Welcome to the Synaptologist Podcast. I'm Daryl Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Dr. Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing? I'm really good, mate. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. I'm very much looking forward to the series that we have got lined up, which we are calling Filmstock Extra. So these are extra bits of content which we are putting out on the main feed that come from recordings that we did at your Filmstock Festival in Luton. That's right, yeah. We had such great conversations with Mike Carey, Kieran Evans and Jeannie Finley. We wanted to give them some really prominent airtime on the main feed and let people enjoy the, the kind of the wisdom that those amazing filmmakers and writers shared with us. So we're not going to go into a long extended discussion for these episodes and there won't be an outro either. Each one will just go straight into the main body of the content. So what have we got lined up today? On today's episode, it's my conversation with Jeannie Finley, which is a career-spanning conversation full of Jeannie's usual wit and wisdom and amazing insight into her creative process and her approach as a filmmaker. Fantastic. So let's get straight into that now. A reverent hush descended. Has Neil sat on the microphone? Oh yeah, you've got a microphone there, so... All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first uh, podcast recording uh, on our film stock. Uh, we are recording on behalf of uh, The Cinematologist, which is my podcast with uh, Dario Linares, who's in the middle there. You... Hello, Dario. Say hi. Sorry. Oh, Dario. <laughs> um, so when we kind of open it up for questions, Dario will be coming around and shoving his microphone uh, in your face, uh, politely, hopefully. Um, <laughs> To, to kind of catch your side or if you've got any questions you want to ask. But it'll be a, it's just going to be an informal conversation with the guests and we'll just be talking about a lot of things. We've got some clips to show um, to kind of you know, add some, uh, some context to, to what we're talking about. But uh, yeah, let's get underway and welcome our first guest, Junie Finley. Thank you. Um, it's yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, feels like a long time to have you here at Filmstock because I think we met or sort of you know uh, sort of became acquainted through directors notes probably at the end of Filmstock, at the, at the end of its run. Yeah, um, I think we, we met through Twitter, maybe. Maybe or Marvel, Marvel, yeah, directors, directors notes because we all wrote for directors notes, and I probably started doing that around. 2009? Yeah, which is probably just when we finished. Yeah, uh, but you've obviously visited uh, Falmouth University where I teach, but it's really nice to have you here in Luton, uh, screening sound out and talking to us. I guess we'll start kind of generally, really. Um, you sort of said they're kind of writing for director's notes. That was a, a, at the start of you as a, as a filmmaker as well. So how did you, how did you get into this, this kind of business? Oh dear. Um, I was an artist for... Um, for quite a few years. I really enjoyed spending time with people and getting to know their lives and I did a lot of sort of large-scale interactive work. I used to interview strangers about the love that broke their heart and program bus stops with these forlorn love stories. Um, I'm interested in making connections with people and was really interested in any sort of format really. It could be anything from a neon light to a photograph to an enormous doll's house, which um, I made I made an interactive work called Homemaker, which I ended up showing in a, a giant doll's house that I constructed and toured to galleries all over the country. But basically, I'd been doing all this work which was sort of photographically based and dealing with um, a lot of people's stories. And then I realised that the, the conversations I was having with people, when I photographed them, were the work, so I would start filming them. So it was very accidental. So when I was making Homemaker, I was interviewing people who lived all in one room, really, they were housebound. And I just started filming, and it, it was shambles. You know, I was wearing a noisy jacket. Um, I didn't really, I didn't do anything fancy. I just left the camera there, and I talked to people. But I realized quite quickly that if you got people to talk about their thimble collections and the painting of their ex-wife, that they would tell you their whole life. And um, as soon as I'd done that, I was, I don't know, there was a curator at um, 
Aberdeen Art Gallery, we were installing the work, and he just said, you know, the films are in love. You don't need all this. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm going to make a film. So I made a film with a beginning and an end for DV Shorts, a 10-minute film. And then I pitched a film to BBC um, and went through a development process. A film, I pitched a film for Teenland, which was about four teenagers who spent all their time in their bedrooms and their interior landscape of dirty knickers and nail varnish and living online and this sort of thing. And pitched it, did a development pilot. And then at the end of the meeting, you know, we went through this process and I thought, you know what, they'll, they'll let me make a 20-minute film. And the commissioner just said, yeah, make a 60-minute film for me, please. So that's my first film. Straight in, 60 minutes. Six-minute film for BBC Four. And I asked him for, what advice do you have for me? And, he, and I'm not allowed to swear on this, but he went, F off and make me a good film. Oh. Well, you can <laughs> swear on it. Words were like, um, but yeah, that's, how I, that's a very long story, but uh, that's how I became a filmmaker, and um, as soon as I did it, it's just like, I love this. It made sense, yeah. Well, it's just like being in a cinema or hearing applause or seeing people like laugh and cry, and all I ever wanted to do was make people cry. <laughs> the dark. Um, well, I think there's just, a few tears here today when we showed Sound It Out. So. Oh, it's just like the best thing ever. Uh, it's like opium for me. Um, just want emotional connection and intimacy with people. The thing that I think is really intoxicating about making films is you can tell shy stories because the film, the act of making a film is like a loud hailer. You know, you, you'll never see a really strong alpha person in my films because I don't care. Everyone listens to those people all the time. I want to hear the shy people who don't say anything. Uh, we'll show a couple of clips in a minute because I think that, that kind of leads on. But what you're saying there about shyness is really is really interesting given how many films you've made where music is a central theme because that feels like a great vehicle for accessing shyness, you know, as people's, in like Sound It Out, obviously the music that they love, but then also things like uh, Orion and Hip Hop Hope's A Performance, which kind of almost yeah. masks the real shyness at the heart of something. Is that, is that something that you were aware of um, kind of being attracted to as you were kind of making those early films? Um, no, not really. I think everything I do is really instinctive. I really, um, I'm never quite sure what what I'm going to do and why, but it feels right. So I've always really, really trusted my gut instinct. And then you can sort of look back retrospectively. You know, I've made eight, eight features now, and you sort of go, oh yeah, they're, they're all the same. They're made with the same accent. They're made with the same lens, even though making films on the set of Game of Thrones doesn't look the same as following a transgender man having a baby. They look very different on the surface. Or a tiny record shop or a cruise ship full of goths. Um, you know, they, they seem like, what's this weird smorgasbord of stuff? But they, are, they really have a similar, uh, yeah, accent. Yeah, interesting, nice way to put it. Okay, um, there was a few laughs there when they heard about the goth cruise. So uh, let's have a clip from goth cruise, please. You make films, you know, if you didn't, 
if you don't if it didn't feel good about like putting something into the world, you'd never get anything finished. So I'm quite sort of like, okay, that's just a record of the time of how I was feeling and the things I was interested in at that at that time. And that was such a sort of liberation. It was terrifying. You know, I'd made this 60-minute film, Teenland. Um, and this was commissioned so quickly. I mean, we, we pitched it. I think an, I was filming a pilot three months later in America. And then, and then it went to commission. It was commissioned by the Independent Film Channel in uh, the States. And um, I was running a two-unit shoot on an enormous cruise ship. And it was really hard. Yeah. It was insane. Like, it's coming from, you know, say, teens in a bedroom mm-hmm. in Britain, yeah. you know, um, to, yeah, like a cruise ship with Americans and a big, you know, like, it feels like a massive jump up, you know. It was, um, yeah. it was mental. <laughs> um, but it was such a baptism of fire. I sort of felt like... I could, this is alright, I could do another feature, this is okay. So, you, yeah, so by that time you kind of, you're into the mode of, this is what, I can do this, doesn't really matter what it is, you know, I'll take it on and kind of adapt to the opportunities that arise, because that seems to be something that's kind of so. come up throughout your career. I mean, maybe it's like a foolish thing that's the opposite of imposter syndrome, um, it doesn't mean that I think I'm great, but I sort of think, why not me? Yeah. Why not? Why don't I just give it a go? You know, in, I live in Nottingham, and there's quite a big film scene in Nottingham, but there's a lot of people that make shorts, and they make shorts, and they make shorts, and they make... I was, I once made a feature, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm going to make another feature. You know, especially after um, being an artist for years, and the sort of tyranny of uh, the private view, where you never really know if people like something or not. The thing that's really intoxicating about making films is that people, if they watch it in a cinema, they're there to watch the film and they'll like it or they don't like it. You know, it's, it's much more immediate and connected. So, yeah, I have all, you know, quite often, like, my mouth has written checks that I have to then cash. Yeah. So, like, I, there was points when I was standing on the deck of that cruise ship because all the shots were shot, we had a cameraman on the shore and I'd like drawn pictures of how I wanted it to look and I was like, I hope he's getting it. <laughs> you know, it was, and yeah. it was terrifying, like 150 people, a lot of people were on holiday, they didn't necessarily want to be in a film, trying to keep everyone happy. It's enormous yeah. and running a team, but I also th- love the challenge. And I guess what's driving you is that, you know, you're genuinely interested in these people, so it's almost like you can zero in on them as individuals rather than, you know, bring this kind of machinery of the film to it, you know, because you feel like a filmmaker that's very much connected to your subject at all times, which I think is so important for getting the kind of stories that you want to tell. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of, I really enjoy the idea of sort of microcosmic filmmaking that, um, you know, I could have, with Sound It Out, it felt really important to me that this record shop was, I loved it. I just fell in love with it and it felt really special. It felt like an escape for me. And I could see that it was an escape for lots and lots of other people. Um, and I'd much rather just make a film about that tiny world rather than make a film about every, you know, do a survey film. Yeah. You know, there's how many record shops in the UK I know that I don't need to film in every single one of them I could just film one mm. you know and I've followed that throughout all of my films I think yeah. but it needs to be one that you uh, well have a connection with so that you can go in and not just be like I'm here to film this record store because everyone's oh, talking about record yeah. stores yeah. yeah and you know when I was touring the film internationally and I got taken to every record shop in every town we've got one around the corner I know <laughs> So yeah, someone just told me about it. That's yeah. really cool. The, the, the thing is, I'm not actually interested in record shops. I'm interested in the stories of the people that run the record shops. Yeah. Like, I've got a lot of records, but I'd much rather hear the story. Like, I collect stories. Yeah. I don't collect vinyl. <laughs> Anymore. We should have to get rid of it. No, but, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, though, being connected with this, mm. I see Tom really regularly. The shop is doing amazing. 
Um, when the film came out, we, um, the f you know, this was a film that I made because after I'd finished Goth Cruise, I was trying to get this, this film made, Ryan, and I was really struggling. I couldn't get it commissioned and um, couldn't raise the money. So I started making the great hip hop hoax. Then we had we hit a stumbling block with that, and I was spending a lot of time in lawyers' offices, and I was like, "This isn't fun." And so I started making Sound It Out. I was going home a lot because my mum had breast cancer, and I was in the northeast all the time. And I'd go to the shop, and it was an escape. And it just felt like this is a film I need to make, and I know I can make it for ten pence because it just needs my time. And the intention was always to make the film and sell it in the shop on DVD. That would be the end point. Yeah. And that was enough because I, I knew that I needed to just make the film. And I didn't have my two units like on Goth Cruise. It was just going to be me learning how to use a camera. And the shop's a bit chunky and I knew that it would be a bit rubbish, the filming. But it didn't matter because it, it fit the film. But the film... You know, we crowdfunded it, it got this really big active following and then it premiered at South by Southwest. Someone gave me a waiver to submit because it's £150 to submit to South by Southwest. Um, and it got in. It made it through 5,000 submissions and premiered there. And it was wild. We got so much press and the film released in America, Canada, Germany. Uh, and then the BBC, after saying it was too boring to commission, bought it, <laughs> which was great. Um, but as a consequence, like the film has been massively pirated in China. So now, loads of Chinese tourists come to Sound It Out <laughs> Loads of people from Germany come over. Um, the shop's doing really well. The guy, Chris, the auditor, now works for Tom. Nice. In the shop. <laughs> and... Um, the shop next door to him closed out. Well, the guy went inside for drink driving. And, um, he took over. He expanded the shops. The shops now are third bigger. And they do like much bigger in-stores. So like the future heads are always a uh, razor light, weirdly. I didn't realise it was still a thing. But they did an in-store last year. And people come from all over the world to visit the shop. So all those, those, yeah. But I think you know one of the wonderful things about it is that all those decisions that you've made, just you, with these people to to make the thing, yeah. Almost like you know, the, like say that instinct of this is how this film's got made, is is the reason that it has that impact because it is such a beautiful human film that you can put your you know your experience of your record shop in your town or your town and your experience with those people in town, onto the film, it has such a resonance in that way. So almost those instincts are paying off in terms of that connection to the film, which is, is wonderful. Um, and yeah, kind of that, that, that kind of classic idea that the specific is universal. You know, if it was just a, about record stores, it wouldn't be anywhere near as, but there's something so relatable about this record store that no one's ever been to. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I wanted it to be about personal stories and human beings. You know, if I wanted to make a list of record shops, like, you know, there's, there's, there are those films out there. Did you get a lot of, uh, come and make a film about the rec this record store afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like, I don't want to make a shopping list. <laughs> That's really nice, but it's not for me. Yeah. You know, someone else can, someone else can do that, and there's definitely a, a market for those sort of films. And... Did it kind of change the way you kind of thought about your filmmaking? Because you were sort of saying the first couple of films are almost kind of commissioned. Mm. So you're working in that structure of, with a, a well, bigger they were, team. Yeah. But they were commissioned, they were my ideas. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in terms of actually like having a quote-unquote traditional crew and kind of going out, you know, filming it's it all, in a way. It's all sort of the same, really, because it was all coming from me. You know, I made Goth Cruise because I went to the goth, the wedding of an old friend from school and she was goth in her 40s. It was like the older sister. And at school she'd been like this Susie Sue rebel. And then I, I went to her wedding and she was still a goth. And I, it, it made me sort of think, wow, I wonder what it is about goth. Because you always see old goths. What is it about goth that makes people want to be goth forever? So I started developing a film called Goth Till I Die. <laughs> 
And then I came home from work and my husband said, I've got it, the goth cruise. He'd read about this goth cruise online and I was like, oh, that's it. So then, you know, I had to hunt them down, get the access, and then we got IFC on board and worked with a production company. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of weird. It's all the same. But I guess the thing that sounded out really made me feel okay about was that you know I'd pitched we started to pitch sound it out and you know like I alluded to earlier like I pitched it to the BBC and they were just like it's too small it's sort of not it's boring (laughs) (laughs) it's that it's charming enough but no one will ever watch a film about a tiny boring record shop in the northeast and I saw and I just thought okay that's fine I disagree. <laughs> You're wrong. This place is amazing. And actually, I don't care, so I'm just going to make it. Um, and as soon as I did that, it felt so liberating. I felt like I can just make this on my terms and I can choose the people, you know, I can cast whoever I want in the film. And I just completely followed my nose. Um, so I knew I wanted some metalers. Everyone said I had to meet Shane, the Quo guy. Um, Mac was always in, um, just drunk, <laughs> and being really cheeky with the camera. And prior to that, I'd ne- you'd never heard my voice on camera, but it seemed like this, what we were experiencing here is about a relationship with, it's not just the camera, it's because I'm holding the camera, yeah. and it's about our proximity. So why, don't that, why doesn't that become part and parcel of the film and so I guess it just gave me confidence of oh my goodness uh, when the film sort of took off I just thought oh wow it doesn't have to be big it can be small and the smallness is really powerful great Um, and then how does that impact like you're sort of saying you've got the great hip hop hoax and Orion kind of bubbling away around that time (laughs) does that then help with those, those kind of getting those projects realised because of, of the success of this film? Yeah, totally. I mean, when we got back from... We met with the BFI at South by Southwest and they sort of said, look, we know you've done three crowdfunding campaigns for Sound Out, which was exhausting. They said, we do a fourth one um, <laughs> to take it to cinemas. And I just... It was like, you're joking. Uh, it's the well that is dry. But we did, and we took the film to 50 cinemas um, and toured it, did pop-up record shops, put the, you know, did the DVD as a double gatefold seven-inch DVD with a vinyl soundtrack. And it made me just learn so much. And uh, Gavin, one of the characters from The Great Hip Hop Hoax, came to see sounded out at Rough Trade East. I was there on Record Store Day because we were the official film of Record Store Day. And um, he was like, oh yeah, you know that hip-hop film? Do you want want to make that film again? And I was like, yeah. So we went straight into production because we'd already lined up all the money. We We just needed the access. So we just went straight into production. And then as soon as we made that, you know, that went okay. And... The BBC were like, what do you want to make next? I was like, Orion. They were like, it's amazing, why haven't you brought us this before? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, sometimes it's just not the right timing and you just have to be patient. Right, I think on that note, we've got a clip from Orion. So let's see another one. And we had this talk is that I'm not going to play you sound too much like the others. In the United States, if you sound like the others, it's a kiss of death. Because Elvis was more than just a voice. He gave all of the people of my generation a freedom that we hadn't had before. I remember seeing Orion and just kind of feeling, oh, this is clearly the same filmmaker who's made Sound It Out and hip-hop hopes um like that the, the, the just the sheer kind of human interest in this person and their story is so evident but it also feels like there's a confidence that's growing and that there's a support behind you mm-hmm. not necessarily you know you might you know, i know there's still challenge but it feels like 
you're, you, it's a step on from those films in terms of the kind of filmmaking you're able to do. Is that, is that what it felt like at the time, like you were operating on a, on a slightly bigger canvas? Um, yeah, I mean, there was just more I wanted to, to do with the film and yeah, you grow in confidence. Um, it's a bit of a, I mean, it's a weird film. For those, you sort of don't get it from the clip, but basically Shelby Singleton, the naughty, let's call him the naughty um, Simon Cowell at the end of the film, basically decided to package Jimmy Ellis, the guy you see, by putting a mask on him, and he sort of perpetuated the hoax that Elvis had faked his own death. And uh, because he looked like Elvis, and he sounded like Elvis, so if he wore a mask, in 1979, hundreds of thousands of people believed that he was Elvis. So um, he went on this kind of roller coaster journey and it ended up in total tragedy. And I went looking for the story because we bought a record, uh, car boot sale for a pound of this man with a mask on and an amazing voice, and then found the most sort of devastating story. Yeah, I was really. You know, something on the surface like this, it looks like, oh, it's just pop culture trash. And I was interested in something that was um, human. Yeah. You know, we were talking earlier, there's a really amazing book called, um, Let's Talk, what's it called? Let's Talk About Let's Love. Let's Talk About what, Love, yeah. Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People's Taste in Music is So Bad. <laughs> and it's sort of about Celine Dion and about the resonance of her music and if you drive through a gangster neighborhood in LA and you hear Celine Dion playing you should get out of there because <laughs> it's a lot of um, a lot of gang members listen to Celine to show that they're tough enough <laughs> to let the emotions show um, you know in the same way it sounded out that I take I never I would never sneer at anyone else's taste ever because I haven't got the right to do that if something means something to someone so if you like Makina which to me just sounds horrendous, personally, but I love the passion yeah. that people have for it, and I love the rapping, it's brilliant. You know, all status quo, I heard so much status quo now, <laughs> and I was absolutely in love with the way that Shane loves it. So in the same way with Orion, I spent a lot of the time when we were touring Sound It Out in the States, um, I would just think, the only way I'm gonna get this film made is to prove it to people, so I would, call up my cameraman and we'd go and get another interview. And, we'd, and by the time the film got fully commissioned, I'd already shot 80 hours wow. and, and gathered 5,000 um, archive photographs and loads of uh, private archive from people's like, attics and, and stuff. Mm. And it, it, it feels you know, like a great companion piece to the hip hop hoax, which are about these you know, performance um, and kind of pulling one over on people. But but obviously in hip hop hoax it's driven by the performers, whereas here it's it's kind of you know, it's almost out of the performers' hands, you know. Was that it's sort of a three way lie. Yeah. So you've got Shelby Singleton's lying to the public saying, This is El this is Elvis. Uh, Jimmy's lying to himself because he's like, I'm gonna put a mask on and it's not gonna make any difference, <laughs> is it? And then the audience are lying as well because they're looking at it thinking uh, is it Elvis? I mean, he's three inches taller than Elvis. <laughs> we did see Elvis in a coffin. <laughs> so I think that's in yeah. that's sort of what yeah. I was interested in. Yeah. Um, so those sort of three films are they come out sort of one after each other, mm -hmm. um, and hearing you sort of talk even a little bit there and kind of knowing how how those films were made. There's obviously they're in development a lot, and you're not sure which which is. Uh, which is going to come out when, or what's going to get made when, and then you just yeah. take the opportunity to make them all. But from an audience perspective, it looks like this is someone who's just making films about music. Were you worried about kind of getting caught as the person who's going to tell kind of quirky music stories, even though when people see the films, they're not they're not like that. But on, I mean, just for a bit of a remove, it might be that might be the perception. Yeah, it's a bit. I mean, what's weird is you get played at a lot of festivals because a lot of festivals have got music documentary slots. But I always thought that they were very much stories about what it means to be a human being and have desires and they're about the consequences of, the desire for fame and the consequences of that. And also, yeah, they're about who you are as people. You know, the mask is so, such a sort of over, 
thing. But, you know, we all make decisions about what we look like every day. I thought I'd wear my suit today, but what does that make you think about who I am as a, a person? You know, people are layered and interesting. So there was a bit where I was like, yeah, they're not really about music. You know, and I studied music at university, so I'm very, you know, to write music for cellos and I'm interested in score and composition. And, but that's not, that's not the only thing. But, you know, people are fine. People find things. Yeah. And I think all the best music films are always about something other than the music. Because, you know, those ones that resonate, like you say, you don't have to like the music a lot of the time to, mm. to really understand yeah, who the human beings are that are doing this thing. Um, and that, you know, it was so interesting to hear you talk at the start of the talk about your, where it all started, because everything you're saying is coming back to, well, what's the story with these people at the heart of it? Oh yeah, there's got to be a story, because otherwise what's the fuel in the engine? Otherwise it's just, you're just ticking off hits on a list. Yeah. Is that something that you've learned in terms of, you no, know? No, it's, I live, I'm based in a cinema and yeah. I go and see films all the time I get very lucky I get free tickets so I go and see what everything that's out um, and I'll try not to read anything and I'm interested in emotion and story you know my favorite filmmaker is Hirokazu Koreeda who made the amazing shoplifters last year and Japanese filmmaker he makes films where the fuel that drives those films is is emotion um, but they're, they're just cracking story I love a good story that you want to unpick and get to know. And it might just be that you feel differently about someone at the beginning to the end. You know, I can sound it out. I was quite into the idea that there wasn't a huge story. The idea, you know, the, the sh I wanted to show people what the shop meant. What would happen if the shop closed? Because I thought it might. When I was there, like one day I filmed and Tom took five pounds. And then another day he took nothing. And I was like, oh my God, this is, it's going to close. Yeah. This is, my film is going to be about this amazing place closing, but, you know, thankfully it didn't. But yeah, I'm not interested in, uh, in and for things in and of themselves. Mm. I get, you know, as my films uh, become more visible, um, I've been approached by a lot of uh, record labels and uh, people to make films. And it's quite tough, because I say no to, like, almost everything because I'm always like there's no story just because they exist is not enough yeah, yeah. and that's it's, I think I think that's great that that's that's your approach I think that is something that is so apparent in your work so after you sort of talked there about your films becoming more visible for, but for a couple of years you were kind of invisible yeah uh, in terms of you know after kind of Orion a very very what looked like a quiet period at least from the outside um, but obviously you weren't Oh my god. So let's have a, a quick look at what Jeannie was doing for two years in secret. This is strange. Here we are at the last cable read. It's like looking around and seeing your family. Makes me emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, and that, there's a line at the end where like, the director sort of says, you know, this, this show saved my life. And, you know, you're, you're getting emotional there. And, you know, I think, again, you feel like the right, one of the right filmmakers to tell this story and actually draw out the people at the heart of this thing, which everybody knows, but no one sees, mm -hmm. no one sees how, what it takes to get there. So, um, yeah, talk us through kind of, I'm really interested in kind of that, that decision because one of the people says at the start, like, you know, what, what have I done or something like this, or um, why have I done this, you know? Um, and that feels like a question to ask you, kind of like, um, yeah. Why the hell did I do it? Why did you do it? Um, Obviously, yeah, there are obvious reasons, but why did you, as a filmmaker, who's interested in certain things, do it? It was just too amazing to not do it. I got, um, I got an email from a producer in Ireland that I, you know, I've met some film festivals I don't know very well just saying HBO are going to call tomorrow take the call <laughs> that was it so it's like okay. so it's googling the people this is me googling them um, and I was like oh it's on Game of Thrones I haven't watched Game of Thrones 
Okay. So I'd watched one episode. I'd been trapped in a um, hotel in um, America uh, showing uh, Orion. Is that right? No, just sound it out. And there'd been a tornado in St. Louis Airport. So I'd been stuck in America and I'd watched the very beginning of Game of Thrones and there was all these making of there. And then I just didn't end up watching it. I tried and then I just, I couldn't ever really, yeah, I just sort of thought, this is not for me. Or there's just too much, too much to watch. So I sat my friend down, who I work with at Broadway, um, and I said, why do you love it? What, tell me everything about Game of Thrones and why you love it. And I sort of thought, well, I don't know the show, but I understand fandom and I know why people love things so much. And actually, it's like the biggest television show in the world. Who are the people? Oh my God. Who are the people that actually make this thing happen? So I thought, well, this is quite interesting. I had the phone call with them and they asked me how I would approach making a documentary about the final season. So I just approached it like any other film. And I thought, oh, I'll never hear from them again. And then I got a call three weeks later saying, I think this was on Thursday, and said, can you come to Los Angeles on Tuesday? We'll send a car. Okay. <laughs> so I went, so I was interviewed by the writers, um, David and Dan, and Bernie Caulfield, who's the executive producer, and Karen Strauss, who's the exec who commissioned Game of Thrones in the first place. I mean, it was deeply surreal, sort of like, driving down Melrose, looking at all the film studios and the Hollywood sign, and going and having an interview by these writers, talking to them about a show that I'd recently only just binged. <laughs> you know, I'd been like really like trying to cram it in. And what I was really struck by was just the scale and ambition of it, um, how divisive it is, how strongly people feel about Game of Thrones, but also what it reminded me of is I made a film called Panto for Storyville, um, which was about, you know, any production has the same drama and people and are you going to do it? But also the way that Game of Thrones is told is it focuses on individual stories within a massive world. And I sort of thought, okay, I can get on with that. I'm going to do the same. Mm. So I just pitched them. You know, your, your story's about seven kingdoms. I'm going to find seven departments. I'll find you seven amazing characters that will make you laugh, make you cry, and I'll take you through. Let's follow their final season in real time and see what it's like. And, and, then, and then they went, yeah, do you want to do it? And then three weeks later, I was in a god-awful, drafty quarry in Northern Ireland filming, and we filmed for 14 months in complete secret, didn't tell anyone, uh, or tell my hairdresser. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then we cut for secret in seven months of Broadway. Um, and then they announced the film like five weeks before it aired, and then it aired in 180 countries worldwide. It was insane, the whole thing was insane. And I sort of, it was such an explosion. And then afterwards it's so, the fandom's so voracious that they want everything and then afterwards there's just, it's just quiet. I mean, people, when it broadcast, it was wild. People were sending me photos of them crying, um, films of them crying. Um, and uh, I probably, I got thousands of messages from strangers, thousands. It was so amazing. What was it like, hand, like giving the film over knowing how how every all those years were going to come down to essentially this last this last couple of weeks because everything kind of geared towards the finale and mm. your you screened just after the finale or just around the we finale we screened the week after the finale yeah. in the Game of Thrones slot um, so yeah so what was it like I mean obviously you sort of say the fans responded to it oh my god it was it was absolutely terrifying because. Um, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but the season eight, there was a huge fan backlash, and we obviously we finished the film, and delivered it um, before the season premiere. We fin we dropped the we finished the film, and then uh, Alice, the editor, and I flew to New York for the the premiere of, of the first episode at the Radio City Hall, which was amazing. It was very fun, and we just felt so relieved that it was all done and done and dusted. And then the fans, oh, the petitions, the 
it's just, um, yeah, it was a lot. And I was just terrified. At that point, I was just like, well, I can't change. The film is, is what it is. People will like it or they won't like it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think it's a good film. It's observational. There's no interviews in it. It's just following people in real time. And I've chosen some really odd people. So they'll like it or they won't yeah. like it. And I, I just had yeah. to feel like that. But people responded so positively to it. It was amazing. Because I, I sort of went into it thinking, we'll get 50-50. But we probably got like 90, 95% positive feedback. Great. What was it? What was it like? What was the response like from the team? Because obviously, it must have been emotional for them to see essentially all of their years and years of work kind of brought together. You know, was it? What was the response like from them? You know, when they saw the film? Oh, really, really emotional. And um, some people were in the states, so I got um, I got a phone call from David Nutter, who's the director, one of the directors I followed, and he phoned me from. LA and he'd watched it with his wife um, and assistant Patrick and it was just it was just lovely very very emotional a lot of um, yeah people responding to it with their hearts and yeah it sounds like all well, everything's about tears but um, but that was the yeah goal, people wasn't connect it? Yeah, very directly yeah. um, and you obviously connected I mean you connect obviously with a lot of with the, with your characters I mean that's what and and the participants. In your films, which is why I think they they do make people emotional because mm. you're you you're in there, kind of as that conduit for the audience, kind of helping, not manipulating in any way, but just kind of helping get to what really matters. And I think what's remarkable from what I've seen of that is like is the ability to take like say the biggest production in the world and zero in on people mm. and the beauty of them doing their job and you know, just kind of happy and struggling and all the things that we that everyone does all the time. And I imagine that's probably a way for audiences to connect in a way they probably didn't even imagine when they're watching the show, which is so on another level in terms of the concept. This is Oh yeah. The I wanted to find the small stories in amongst this epic landscape. Have we got a clip of the actual show? Uh no. I didn't no. put one in. Because I didn't know if anyone had wanted to I d I don't wanted to see it, but I wasn't sure what to do. Um, we could probably grab one. Have you got the... It'd just be good if we could show the clip of the Night King. Yeah, okay. Have you got the... If you haven't done Yeah, have you got the drive there? Sorry, I think it's. I think it's on my drive, actually, Ben, sorry. Chaos yeah, I, 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 don't, I think I've only given it in the list. Sorry. Um, what's that? YouTube? No, YouTube. Um, I'll, yeah. I haven't got it in. I've just given him the, the playlist rather than the clips. Yeah, don't worry. Sorry. Uh, but it is oh, available. It's on People, Now yeah. TV. Now TV. It's on Now TV, it's on Prime, it's on the box set. It's probably. Oh, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you can find it. <laughs> it's out there, uh, is what we'll say. Um, yeah, it's called The Last Watch. Because I wanted to move on to the other film that you're making at the same time. Um, which uh, I mean when because the, the announcement sort of came out very close it was like obviously you hadn't been around for a while um, and, and my boss Kingsley who you met a couple of times film, was like when's Jeannie coming back I was like I don't know I don't think she's, she's not doing anything um, and then it was like oh she's been doing The Last Watch and also this film called Seahorse um, which is yeah an absolutely remarkable piece of work um, and similar to Orion, feels like, again, you just taking a kind of a huge leap forward in terms of your confidence as a filmmaker and your ambition as a filmmaker, while still retaining everything that's, that's made of your films, what they are. Um, could you just give us a little bit of context? We've got, we've got some stuff from Seals, but a little bit of context about that project and also how, how it worked to do these two things side by side, two just huge stories. Mm. Um, and how that was how that was to kind of juggle emotionally as much as anything else those two worlds which must have been literally kind of huge worlds to inhabit. <laughs> uh, yeah, Seahorse is Seahorse tells the story of Freddie McConnell, who was a thirty-year-old um, trans guy from Deal near Margate. Um, he knew that he wanted to get pregnant and have a baby. Uh, he transitioned 
five or six years prior to that and he went out looking for a filmmaker to tell his story. So he met with a, a number of filmmakers and then he asked me um, to, to do it. And I was interested because it allowed me an opportunity to think, it allowed me a space to think about what it was like when I had my daughter 15 years ago and I was invaded by a benevolent alien. Um, you know, so I could think about pregnancy and I could think about what it meant to be a parent. Um, but also I was just, I just had loads of questions. I didn't know that many trans people. Um, I was interested in the idea of someone who had endured enormous transition and change in their life because that's what pregnancy also is. And I was interested in how that would affect him and whether he would experience things differently as a man. And was, yeah, so we, so I said yes. I sort of said to Freddie, if you want me to make this film, I'm all in. Are you ready for that? And do you actually want to make a film? Really? Because it's a lot. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great. And then, it was really tough. <laughs> it was just the hardest thing ever. So I filmed Seahorse for about a year and then I started on Thrones. And the thing that both films has in common, have in common is that they're both observational. And there's not really any visible interviews in the film. So you're really with someone in real time with things unfurling. And yeah, I just wanted to... Again, I didn't want to tell the story of every trans person who's ever had a baby. Um, I wanted to tell Freddie's story about what it was like for him and the sort of challenges he experienced. And it was really intense. Um, and I'm really proud of the film. It's been sort of extraordinary. We took it out of cinemas earlier this year and then it, it broadcast on BBC Two um, in September. It, yeah, uh, it, yeah, really is an, an extraordinary piece of work. It's interesting you he sort of say about being all in. You know, what did you approach it almost in that kind of sound out way? Like it's going to be me, and I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be doing like it's going to be us, and we're going to go through this together. And is that then also what made it tough, or was it? I mean, obviously, you know, just the the intimacy of watching someone go through that process is tough, and I guess tough for Freddie. Um, but then also, was it the not just that, because the making the film is one thing, but then the film is done and it's out there. Is that something else that was, was tough for, for Freddie to, to kind of to, to have to understand? Um, I think it was tough because he, you know, Freddie's talked about this publicly, um, that he thought that pregnancy would be the thing that he would find hard. But what was really difficult is once he stopped taking testosterone in order so that he could conceive, it meant that his gender dysphoria returned and it's a sort of, he describes it as um, toothache of the soul. Can you imagine like a hunger that can never be satisfied, uh, a sort of, uh, yeah, it just made him feel profoundly terrible and, and at sea, really. And at this, sort of time of profound difficulty. I'm there, hi, I'm in a film with you today, even though you don't want to film anymore. He didn't want to be in a film anymore. Yeah. And it was really, really hard. So I'd drive for hours and show up and he's like, no, not today. So I'd just wait and I'd go running on the beach. I was training for a half marathon and I just kept thinking, okay, I'm at mile nine. Sometimes you just want to, you feel like you want to die, uh, but you just have to keep running. And that is like the perfect analogy of long form documentary filmmaking. Um, but also making Game of Thrones, making The Last Watch was sort of like a blessing because although that was physically and emotionally overwhelming as well, I, it was just so different. I had a team of eight people. I would be doing that same intense, filming of just me and the camera and one person. Um, but it, get, it sort of flexed a different part of my brain. So I'd do a week on Thrones and then a week in Deal <laughs> with Freddie. 
or a week filming in Northern Ireland or Iceland, and then I'd go back to filming Seahorse. So it was exhausting, uh, but also you feel like a, I felt a match fit. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. knew what I needed to do, and sometimes there's no time, so you just absolutely, I absolutely had to trust my instincts and just remember that when I'd done that before, it had worked out. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. When I talk about it now, I was like, oh my God. It was not by design, but, but, but like, retrospectively, yeah. I think they're really similar films, weirdly. Because I've made, because I finished Seahorse first, and then I finished Thrones. Yeah. And what's also similar is, you know, like, the, they're films that have put you, you know, made you visible as a filmmaker in a way that probably has, you know, has not been the case before. Mm. Because, you know, those films have, you know, an audience that loves them, um, and you have a following, but this is something else in terms of Thrones, it's... But they're the just much watching. bigger, yeah. and like the film got an Emmy nomination, so went to the Emmys and hanging out with the drag queens from Drag Race and meeting the people from Queer. It's just bonkers, and that's crazy. Um, and then Seahorse on the other side is obviously it, it's topical, so the audience is is going to come at it in a in a well, yeah, or potentially rabid, but also kind of you know, aggressive way just because of what it's about. Oh yeah, it's wild. I mean, when it broadcast on BBC, it trended and we got a lot of really um, <coughs> vicious, negative stuff as well because the idea of a man having a baby is so uh, new or different or completely fundamentally is not what people... This is not how they live their lives. You know, and also the, one of the things that also happened is when we were... Taking the film out to cinemas, Freddie, during the making of the film, uh, secretly, secret, anonymously, took the government to court so that he could be the first person, his baby would be the first baby to not have um, a mother on the birth certificate. He wanted to be listed as a father because he's legally male. So he wanted to be a father or parent. So he, wants, he took them to court in a sort of precedent-changing court case which was anonymous and then five newspapers got together and outed him because they sort of said you can't have your cake and eat it, you can't be in a bearing all documentary and claim anonymity. So we had this sort of extraordinary thing where my mum's phoning up and going, oh well done for getting the poster of your film on the front cover of the Telegraph. I was like, what? <laughs> and. Um, yeah, he was outed, and it meant the the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph. I've, I can't remember the yeah the lots of tabloid newspapers. So it meant that we had like ridiculous things where you had a journalist from a newspaper trying fifteen times to get into a private screening, and then paparazzi waiting for us outside a screening room because they thought that he might have his baby there, and they wanted to get a snapper a shot. And, you know, I just sort of feel like he's just one person living his life. Yeah. Why be so... I think the tabloid frenzy around trans stories is just... It just seems insane. Yeah. And it seems almost like the way that people talked about gay people 50 years ago. I mean, I've had a good friend who sort of... Anyway, that's a story that I shouldn't say publicly, but uh, people have strong feelings about transgender yeah. stories. Which is why it feels such a, an important film for now. Mm. Um, to actually spend so much time, I think you know, in a, in a, in that educational way that you're sort of saying there, because it's it, it feels like something which is has been hidden for so long, and yeah. most of society doesn't have access to the experience of knowing people who've gone through it, um, and it feels really invaluable to have that that film to yeah to just to just see see such a complex story unfold. Um, yeah, and do you feel like, do you, because it looks like now so that you, your films have taken a, a step on with mm. these two, um, as I sort of mentioned before, is that how it feels, not just because of the, the response, which is obviously, you know... Oh yeah, you know. like I've, um, I, so you get, you feel like you know what you're doing more, or trust your instinct, I, I guess I don't second guess it as much. I'm just doing it all. You know how to keep the camera focused. 
Or, you know, I've um, spent more money on cameras. Or had... Yeah, I've had better... Yeah, you learn more, don't you? You learn, you learn more and you try and... Like, if I wasn't learning stuff, I would stop doing it. Um, you know, with each film, you want to do something not bigger, but that's is pushes you more. Challenges you, yeah. And I think the thing that I really felt like with Seahorse was, when it got challenging, I didn't want to put the camera down, I wanted to get closer. And I think in the past, I might have maybe felt a bit more uncomfortable with that and walked away. Whereas now it feels like, if it's tough, I've got to keep filming and I've got to zoom in. And that's really hard. Like when you're with people and you're living their experience and things are really hot, you know, tough or difficult, is it okay to keep looking? And I sort of know now, yeah, because you, you feel it in the film and the film's more powerful as a result. You know, things like filming Freddie's birth, the birth of his baby, you know, that was, we were, I was going to do that with a, a camera person and we'd got this all set up and then when I got to the hospital, his mum just sort of said, it's got to be you, only you. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm trying to keep focus while I'm having this sort of emotional experience to watching a baby being born that I've been there at every stage of that baby's creation. Yeah, amazing. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, so it's a lot for me as well. Yeah. I think what's great about you as a filmmaker is that you, you feel that you understand that privilege in a way that oh a, lot my God, a lot of filmmakers totally. don't always understand. You know, like yeah. you don't abuse that and that you create that bond that is, we know that it's not an exploitative one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got to, I think the work of a filmmaker is to remain soft. In a really like this is we live in interesting times. We live in tough times, so it's it's like can you remain soft within that tough experience? Because you know I have to really fight my ground, protect my people. Whenever I'm making a film, you know it's not. You have to work with lots of partners. But as soon as you make a film that costs more than ten pounds, you have to work with all of those partners that put the money in. But it's my job to make sure that everyone sort of comes out of the other side of that and they recognise themselves in the film, that they haven't been stitched up. You know, I need to be able to keep the promises that I make and in order to do that, I have to do some stuff that's really tough and stand my ground. It was quite, I mean, making a film with, like, On the Thrones was fascinating because it's an enormous show and... Navigating the edit was amazing. Just sort of saying, you just got to trust me, and and you need to keep this in, and and they did. Like when I made the last watch, I said you need to give me four months to just wander around, and meet people, and listen, and do a bit of filming, and and I'm not going to show you anything for four or five months. Which quite when I look back now, I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I said that to them. And they were like, okay, yeah, totally fine. So just let me do what I want. Awesome. And yeah, and we're the, we're the better off for it. So let's just finish, if we can, with a clip from Seahorse. Can we see what we're talking about. So I've seen another theme, which is lots of swearing throughout, mm. so that's good. Um, we, uh, we've got another event in here, so I'm going to have to round up. Um, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for talking to, to me and, and, and sharing your work with us. Um, uh, you'll be around for a bit if anyone wants to kind of grab Jeannie uh, for a quick chat after you stop crying. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for coming to Filmstock, and yeah, let's thank Jeannie again. Yeah. <laughs>